Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. Today is Thursday, February 22nd. I'm your reader, Kathleen. From the front page of the Gazette, Kirkwood inaugurates its sixth president. This story is by Vanessa Miller. For just the sixth time in Kirkwood Community College history, the 58-year-old campus Wednesday inaugurated a new president, and Christy Fisher, who started her tenure October 30, did not want all the pomp and circumstance of a ceremony. I have a confession to make, President Fisher said during her inaugural address. I did not want an inauguration. When we discussed it at Cabinet, I made the argument that we can save time, effort, money. I didn't need one. We could just skip it. But one of my wise colleagues quickly reminded me that the inauguration wasn't just about me, she said. Far more important, it was about the college and our traditions. And he was so right. In highlighting Kirkwood's tradition of quality education, training opportunities, and community service, Fisher committed to upholding those rights through another Kirkwood tradition, change. The real relationship about tradition at Kirkwood is that tradition is not about the status quo, she said. Our tradition is to innovate and change. Tradition does not stop us from evolving. In fact, she said, it demands that we change and innovate to meet the needs of today's students and the needs that are in our community today. Fisher started her academic journey down the road at Prairie High School in the 1980s before enrolling in Kirkwood Community College and getting degrees at the University of Iowa and Iowa State University. She spent some of her early professional career in different roles at Kirkwood before stepping in as assistant to then-president Mick Starkovich, who was among the dignitaries at Fisher's inauguration Wednesday. Fisher advanced from there to Vice President of Student Services in 2006 before leaving Kirkwood in 2014 for a vice presidential post at ACT, the education testing firm. She submitted her first application for the Kirkwood presidency in 2018 upon Starcevich's retirement, but lacked presidential experience. So she went and got it as Iowa Valley Community College district president in 2019, returning to apply for the Kirkwood presidency a second time after Lori Sundberg in 2022 announced plans to retire. Ellen Wainware, a Kirkwood study, student studying criminal justice, was among the student representatives who last year interviewed presidential finalists. We were told to ask these candidates very tough questions, Wainware said during the inauguration, but halfway through the interview, I just wanted to hand her the position as president of Kirkwood, her beliefs and attitudes toward life aligned with mine. They both believed, for example, in the power of community and collaboration. They both held high in, excuse me, they both held in high regard the students, faculty, and staff who make Kirkwood what it is. One of the candidates I met, she was the only one I took a photo with after the interview, Wayne Ware said, highlighting the confidence Fisher expressed in her students and reciprocating it. Dr. Christy Fisher, I wish you well on your journey as president of Kirkwood Community College, she said. I'm very excited because you will continue to rise above our expectations.
In speaking on behalf of the Kirkwood faculty, Julia Rabe, president of the Kirkwood Faculty Association, stressed the need for collaboration and cross-campus communication. Fisher, in her remarks, echoed that sentiment, promising to continue Kirkwood's legacy of cooperation, innovation, and service across a vast array of disciplines, from the arts to the sciences to trades in healthcare, engineering, and culinary arts, for example. Today I pledge to all of you that I will always honor the traditions of Kirkwood while we evolve to meet the challenges of a changing world, Fisher said. These traditions of excellence, collaboration, service, and innovation are what makes Kirkwood who we are. I always remember that we are Kirkwood because, like former Governor Samuel J. Kirkwood, we strive to foster hope, talent, and opportunities for all people. Also on the front page, this story by Vanessa Miller, UI to close learning centers in Cedar Rapids and the Quad Cities. In an effort to save money and better allocate resources, the University of Iowa is planning to close several off-campus centers, including the Tippie College of Business Cedar Rapids Learning Center on downtown's 2nd Avenue Southeast. The UI request to close that center, along with its Birchwood Learning Center in Davenport and its Scott Community College Learning Center in Bettendorf, will go before the Board of Regents for approval next week. Working professional students are overwhelmingly selecting online courses for their flexibility, according to the request to close the Birchwood Center, which houses space for the Professional Master of Business Administration and Master of Science in Business Analytics programs. Offering both in-person and online has become an inefficient use of resources. UI officials gave the same reasons for wanting to close the Scott Community College Center and the Tippie Center of Cedar Rapids, where last year 101 students enrolled in the Professional MBA program and 37 enrolled in the MSBA program. The university did not immediately say how many of the 101 Cedar Rapids Professionals MBA students in 2023 the highest enrollment since at least 2019, were taking courses in person and how many were online only. It also did not immediately share specifics about the 37 students enrolled in the Cedar Rapids-based program. Current MBA and MSBA students in the TCOB Cedar Rapids Learning Center will be able to complete coursework through online offerings at the place of their choosing and with more flexibility, according to the UI request which will take effect at the end of the current semester if approved by the board. There will be cost savings from no longer leasing space in Cedar Rapids, UI officials reported. Additionally, faculty resources can be focused on delivering the online program versus teaching courses at multiple in-person sites as well as online. The Birchwood Learning Center closure, like the one in Cedar Rapids, will affect UI professional MBA and MSBA in-person offerings in that the location was used to offer those courses on the eastern side of the state. But unlike in Cedar Rapids, that location had seen enrollment drop from a total of 87 in 2020 to 13 total in 2022. 
given the number of students applying to the Birchwood Center was so low that it would not be feasible to offer courses at that site, beginning in summer 2022, students applying to Birchwood were offered the option of moving to an online learning center. The university's planned closure of its Scott Community College Learning Center will affect Master of Social Work students having opened about 50 years ago to serve the educational needs of students in the region. At that time, UI was the only Master of Social Work program serving Iowa, and the demand for qualified social workers necessitated the opening of this educational center, according to the request for closure. The program originally was organized through the Quad Cities Graduate Study Center, a consortium of 10 universities, which eventually closed, prompting the UI to move its social work center to Scott Community College. Enrollment at Scott Community was affected by two changes, closure of Mary Crest University's Bachelor in Social Work program and the debut of St. Ambrose University's Master of Social Work degree, upping competition for students and practicum sites, according to the UI. In its last recruitment push for the Scott Community Program in the spring of 2021, the UI netted 10 applicants, all of whom were admitted, but eight took the online program. No students have been physically enrolled at the Scott Community College Learning Center since 2019. There has been a decrease in applications to the Learning Center, while at the same time, the program is expanding online due to increased demand, according to the university. It is anticipated prospects in the region of Scott Community College will apply to the online program. The UI Master of Social Work program remains available at its main Iowa City campus with 60 enrolled. The John and Mary Papajohn Education Learning Center in Des Moines with 79 enrolled and through the online UI program with 44 enrolled. UI officials did not immediately disclose how much it has been paying to lease the spaces and how much the program closures could save, but they reported facility resource, or excuse me, faculty resources would be better spent and students would be better served. This should remove barriers as it increases accessibility and convenience. No impact is expected on the Iowa workforce. Turning now to the Iowa Today page, this story is titled Unsung Heroes Honors Black Iowan Trailblazers, and this is by Grace King. Trailblazers like Tawana Grover, Cedar Rapids School's first black female superintendent, and Nancy Humbles, the first black woman elected to the Cedar Rapids School Board, were celebrated Tuesday evening amid a night of music and the retelling of history. Five community leaders were commemorated during the Unsung Heroes event, a celebration of music and black history, organized by Empowering Youths of Iowa and the Department of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusivity at Mount Mercy University. Empowering Youths of Iowa is an educational nonprofit that helps students graduate high school by providing them a safe space to learn and lunch during the week. The other honorees were Simon Estes, an international opera star born in Centerville, Ruth White, founder of the Academy for Scholastic and Personal Success, 
which offers black and biracial students an education they can't find in a public school classroom. Brandon Jackson, founder of Dream Sports, which makes it possible for more children to afford access to youth sports and provides youth and community services such as memberships. Grover, who began as superintendent of the school district in April of 2023, said she became the first black woman to lead the district because there were board members who were courageous enough to demonstrate that was possible. A timeline of black history in Cedar Rapids schools was shared Tuesday, going back to 1964, when Nelson Evans was hired as the first black teacher in Cedar Rapids. In 2009, Humbles became the first black person elected to the Cedar Rapids School Board. She was re-elected in 2013, 2017, and 2021. Her current term expires next year. Did you see the lapses in time, Grover said, referencing the timeline of black history in the school district. It was 2023 by the time we got to my name, no matter what the color of our skin, and what I want us to take away from tonight is that we are in positions of what's possible. It is up to us to add to this timeline. We don't want another 10 to 15 years before we add something to the Cedar Rapids timeline. Other moments in the timeline included Darius Ballard becoming the first black principal in Cedar Rapids in 2020 and students at Washington High School forming the school's first majorette dance team in 2022, a traditionally black style of dance. Ballard has since become the district's chief human resource officer. It is often said that education is a fundamental right, a human right, even a civil right, Grover said. Some people would even argue that education is the great equalizer, but I am reminded here tonight that education is only just one step. Oftentimes it will get you to the door, but it has to be somebody on the other side that is willing to open the door. In accepting her award, Humbles told the audience of about 60 to never give up. Even if you're convinced it's over, it's not over until you say it is, Humbles said. Humbles was inducted in 2019 into the Iowa African American Hall of Fame. She was director of the University of Iowa's Center for Diversity and Enrichment until 2014. Since retiring, she has organized events for the NAACP and served on the Area Substance Abuse Council. Also honored was White, who founded the Academy for Scholastic and Personal Success in Cedar Rapids over 30 years ago. The Academy offers a six-week summer program for high school students. It teaches students about black history, literature, math, and science, and offers a post-secondary seminar to help students prepare for college. There also are after-school programs for elementary and middle school students in Cedar Rapids schools. Another free program called Critical Conversations invites adult learners to learn about black history, ask questions, and have discussions with experts in a safe environment. The Academy's goal is to encourage black and biracial students to do more than they think they can do, White said. Keynote speaker for the evening was Estes, who spoke about his journey to becoming an opera star. Estes, the grandson of a slave who was sold for $500 and whose father could not read or write, has sung for kings and queens, presidents and popes. He has performed in 84 of the world's greatest opera houses and with 115 symphonies. 
Estes talked about reading through the entire Bible with his mother. He reminisced on learning for the first time what opera was, how it opened up a talent for languages he said he was given to him by God, and what it's like to be able to project, without a microphone, to an audience of 4,000. I had no idea that God had given me these gifts. It's been one of the greatest educations I've ever had in my life to travel around the world and see God's great creation, Estes said. And the article includes a photo of Mount Mercy University student Haley Jackson, who presents Cedar Rapids Community School District Superintendent Tawana Grover with an Unsung Hero Award on Tuesday during the ceremony. Also in Iowa Today News, this story by Vanessa Miller, UI Healthcare considers former ACT property for pharmacy services. The University of Iowa is looking to lease 65,760 square feet of warehouse, office, and support space on ACT Inc.'s former Iowa City campus for use by UI Healthcare's Pharmacy Services Group. The agreements going next week before the Board of Regents would be for two adjoining facilities owned by ACT Circle Holdings of Bettendorf. The first 20-year lease would allow UIHC's pharmacy group to use 47,760 square feet of warehouse space at 2100 ACT Circle in Iowa City for specialized pharmacy operations and mail-order prescription fulfillment. The second 20-year lease would enable the pharmacy group to use 18,000 square feet in an adjoining building at 2101 ACT Circle for office and support space, according to Regent documents. Combined, the two facilities would house 95 UI employees, including pharmacists, pharmacy technicians, business managers, and other support staff. UIHC would relocate staff to these new facilities from both an existing leased facility, which ends its lease term in 2024, and from within the UIHC main hospital campus, according to Regent documents, reporting the facilities together would support UIHC pharmacy operations, other healthcare facilities in the area, and provide mail-order prescriptions to Iowans across the state. The proposed leases would have the UI pay $31,442 a month for the warehouse space and $18,750 a month for the office space, or a combined $602,304 a year, which amounts to $12 million over 20 years. That $12 million is without consumer price index escalations. The parties have agreed would increase rent for both buildings at years 4, 6, 9, 11, 14, 16, and 19. News of UI intentions for the property came less than a year after ACT announced plans to lay off 106 employees and start selling more of its property off Scott Boulevard in East Iowa City. ACT is an education testing company with a long Iowa City history. That main Iowa City campus spans 93 acres. ACT Chief Executive Officer Janet Goodwin last year told the Gazette the company was selling due to changes in how employees work, with many preferring remote work from home. 
In 2022, ACT sold its Tyler Building on the Iowa City campus for $8.7 million to the Iowa City Community School District to use as professional development space for educators, online learning support, and possibly career and technical education. As part of the UIHC lease agreement, ACT has agreed to make facilities improvements over the term of the lease. UIHC will be responsible for snow removal, landscaping, building maintenance, janitorial work, insurance, and real estate taxes, while ACT will be responsible for the overall building structure. That lease, should it gain Regent support, will compound UIHC's explosive growth, signing leases for clinics on both the far west and far east ends of the state, and buying Mercy Hospital in Iowa City through a $28 million bankruptcy sale. With that purchase, UIHC added nearly 1,000 former Mercy employees, 192 licensed beds, and 10 clinic locations across the region, including the main Mercy campus in Iowa City. UIHC also is constructing a $1 billion inpatient tower on its Iowa City campus, a new $525.6 million hospital in North Liberty, a $95 million expansion of its existing inpatient tower, and a $37 million upgrade to its main emergency room, among many other projects. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Thursday, February 22nd, on IRIS. And now we turn to today's obituary page, beginning with the short notices first in Marion, Dustin Keith Bumgarner, age 33, died Tuesday, February 20. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service. From Marion, Francis Joan Langham, age 86, died Tuesday, February 13. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service. In Oxford, Carol Ann Walter, age 71, died Tuesday, February 20. Powell Funeral Home, Williamsburg. In Ryan, Douglas Robert Wade, age 74, died Wednesday, February 21. Camp Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service, Manchester. And in Winthrop, Joyce E. Keating, age 75, died Tuesday, February 20. Fawcett Schmidt's Funeral Home is in charge. Turning now to the regular notices, first in Marion, Shalia R. Williams, age 86, passed away Tuesday, February 20, at Oldorf Hospice House in Hiawatha. Visitation is from 10 to 11.30 a.m., Monday, February 26th, at Faith Lutheran Church in Marion. Funeral service is at 11.30 a.m., Monday, February 26th, at Faith Lutheran Church in Marion. Interment at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Sheila was born on April 19, 1937, in rural Manchester, the daughter of Edgar Oscar and Violet Leona Lewin Nelson. For grades 1 through 6, she attended Cox Creek No. 9 rural schools outside of Strawberry Point and graduated Colesburg High School in 1950. Excuse me, graduated from Colesburg High School. Memorials can be directed to the family, and condolences are welcome at cedarmemorial.com. From Cedar Rapids, Richard M. Quetch, M.D., 97, died February 19 at Cottage Grove Place. 
Funeral Mass will be held at 10 a.m. on Tuesday, February 27th at All Saints Catholic Church. Rev. Jack Flaherty will officiate. Visitation will be at All Saints from 9 a.m. until Mass time. Inurnment will take place at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Richard was born February 9, 1927 in Oak Park, Illinois, the son of Gertrude Shea and Leonard Quetch. He graduated from the University of Michigan and Loyola University Medical School. He served as a physician in the U.S. Army and did his residency in internal medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. In 1959, he joined Medical Associates in Cedar Rapids and served as president of the Lynn County Medical Society and was an active contributor to the Cedar Rapids Symphony Orchestra. Donations are suggested in Richard's honor to All Saints Catholic Church or Four Oaks Family and Children's Services. Online condolences are welcome at cedarmemorial.com. From Manchester, Constance, known as Connie, join, excuse me, Joanne Funk, age 81, passed away surrounded by her loving family Tuesday, February 20 at the Regional Medical Center in Manchester. Survivors include her husband of 61 years and her five children. The Mass of Christian Burial will be live-streamed at blessedtrinitycluster.com. Online condolences can be sent to leonardmullerfh.com. Mass is at 2 p.m. on Monday, February 26th at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Manchester. Scripture service is at 1.30 p.m. on Sunday, February 25th at Leonard Muller Funeral Home. Public visitation is from 2 to 6 p.m. Sunday, February 25th at the Leonard Muller Funeral Home. Friends may also call from 1 to 1.45 on Monday at the church. A rosary will be recited by Catholic Daughters in Earnment at Calvary Cemetery in Ryan. From Tama, Mary F. Frimmel, age 76, formerly of Gilman, Iowa, passed away February 20 at her home in Pine Bluff, North Carolina, under the care of hospice and close friends Cody and Danny Petrella of Pine Bluff. Per the wishes of Mary, cremation rites have been accorded and private family services will be held at the interment at St. Patrick's Cemetery in Tama. From Iowa City, John Allen Tomei, age 47, passed away Sunday, February 18th. His loss was unexpected and his family is profoundly saddened. He was their foundation. John was born August 9, 1976 in Iowa City, the son of Allen and Sally Frank Tomei. His youth was filled with friends, sports, and mischief. His friendships formed over a love of Babe Ruth, or while riding bikes through the neighborhood, were his most treasured. As with many Iowa City-bred kids, John had a complicated relationship with his beloved Iowa Hawkeyes. He graduated Regina High School in 1995. A visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 23rd at St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Iowa City, with a rosary recited at 3.30 p.m. Mass of Christian Burial will be held at 10 a.m. Saturday, February 24, at the church. Private interment will be held at St. Joseph Catholic Cemetery. Memorials may be made to the John Tomei Memorial Fund, which will be used for his children. Online condolences are welcome at lensingfuneral.com. In Parnell, 
Harold Eugene Cruz, age 83, passed away February 5 at the Iowa City Mercy Hospital, surrounded by family. Born on December 13, 1940, Harold was the son of Paul and Elizabeth Dykstra Cruz. He graduated from Parnell High School in 1959 before serving in the Navy as an apprentice seaman from 1960 to June of 1964. Following his military service, he dedicated himself to farming, raising cattle and hogs until approximately 1980, and then transitioned to a career in construction in Iowa City. A celebration of life honoring Harold's memory will be held at a later date. In Cedar Rapids, Faye Edwards, age 87, died Friday, February 16. A graveside service will take place at 9 a.m. Saturday, February 24, at Linwood Cemetery in Cedar Rapids with Pastor Bonnie Culpin officiating. A celebration of life will immediately follow until 11 a.m. at the Legacy Center at Murdoch Linwood. From Tipton, Glenn Larry Eaton, age 82, passed away Monday, February 19 at Cedar Manor Nursing Home in Tipton. Funeral services will be at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February 24, at Fry Funeral Home and officiated by Rev. Ron Lashmet. Burial will be held at the Masonic Cemetery in Tipton. Visitation will be from 5 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 23, at Fry Funeral Home. Online condolences may be shared at fryfuneralhome.com. And in Cedar Rapids, David Leroy Barda, age 80, passed away February 18th. A celebration of David's life will be held at 11.30 a.m. Sunday, February 25th at Cedar Memorial Park Chapel of Memories. Visitation will be held beginning at 10. A private burial will be at the Czech National Cemetery. David was born September 26, 1943, to Felix and Ann Barda and was a 1962 graduate of Jefferson High School in Cedar Rapids. David was an avid collector of Lionel trains, a passion that started with his first train set as a child. Memorials are suggested to Cedar Valley Humane Society. Online condolences can be directed to the family at cedarmemorial.com. In Cedar Rapids, Kevin Michael Piper, age 67, died after a long illness, Saturday, February 17, at the Dennis and Donna Oldorf Hospice House of Mercy. Services are at 10.30 a.m. on Wednesday at the Immaculate Conception Catholic Church in Van Horn by Rev. Jacob Dunn. Burial at Holy Cross Cemetery, Keystone. Friends may visit with the family at 9.30 a.m. Wednesday at the church. Kevin's full obituary is available at tnfuneralhome.com. In Dyersville, Eileen E. Dingbaum, age 90, passed away Tuesday, February 20, at Mercy Hospital in Dubuque. Visitation will be held from 2.30 to 7.30 on Friday, February 23, at Kramer Funeral Home in Dyersville. Visitation will continue at Kramer Funeral Home from 9 to 10 a.m. prior to funeral mass. Funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February 24th at St. Francis Xavier Basilica with burial in Memorial Garden Cemetery in Dubuque. Reverend Philip Agay will officiate. Eileen was born May 17, 1933 in Luxembourg, Iowa. 
the daughter of Clemens and Crescentia Tillen Singsank. She married Alver Dingbaum at Holy Trinity Catholic Church in Luxembourg in 1954. The Cornhuskers band played at their reception in New Vienna, and they settled in Dyersville and had four children to complete their family. You may leave condolences at KramerFuneralHome.com. And lastly, in Cedar Rapids, Ronald Leslie Teed, Teej, 88, passed away on February 18 with his family by his side. A celebration of Ron's life includes a visitation on Friday, February 23rd from 5 to 7 at Cedar Memorial Funeral Home, a funeral service on Saturday, February 24 at 1.30 p.m. at the Cedar Memorial Park Chapel of Memories. Interment will be at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Ron was born April 17, 1935 to Henry and Marjorie Darrow Teej and he graduated from Walker High School in 1953 and attended the University of Iowa. Ron worked at Collins Radio for several years and then began his career as an automobile mechanic. Ron had an unwavering commitment to family and was adored by friends. Condolences can be extended at cedarmemorial.com. You're listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Thursday, February 22nd, on iris turning now to the sports page in the sideline column in girls basketball xavier jr libby fandel shared athlete of the year honors with grace knutson of cedar falls in the mississippi division of the all mississippi valley conference girls basketball team western dubuque jr carrington asp won the valley's top honor amy ostwinkle and her western dubuque staff and Chris James and his Cedar Rapids, Washington staff shared Coach of the Year honors in the Valley. Cedar Falls' Greg Groen and staff won the Mississippi honor. And in high school bowling, Vinton Shellsburg's Van Lessig finished first in the Class 1A Boys State Bowling Tournament Wednesday at Cadillac Lanes. Malcolm Clark of Monticello finished third. The Vikings' Kylie Kirchner took home the girls' individual title. In girls' regional basketball in Class 5A, Cedar Falls turns back Prairie. Eight Class 5A teams earned bids to the 2024 Iowa High School Girls State Basketball Tournament with wins on Tuesday night. Here's a look at the regional finals. Cedar Falls, 45. Cedar Rapids Prairie, 35. You could argue with some validity that the most valuable player didn't score a point. Grace Hanum anchored the back of Cedar Falls' smothering defense, and the 7th-ranked Tigers turned back number 11 Cedar Rapids Prairie at Cedar Falls High School. We know we have Grace back there, and she's a blocking machine, Grace Knudsen said. Hanum swatted six shots and grabbed 11 rebounds, and Cedar Falls will take a 20-game winning streak to the state tournament. I'm super thankful right now, said Knudsen, a Drake University signee who shook off a rough start to lead all scorers with 16 points. We came up short last year, but tonight we got it done. They got it done with defense. Shots weren't falling. We couldn't get to the basket, Prairie freshman Keona Worley said. This season was really fun. I'm sad to see it end. Davenport North 53 over Cedar Rapids, Washington 40. 
<clears throat> a season removed from winning only one game, Cedar Rapids-Washington held a lead in the second half Tuesday night. The Warriors couldn't make it a storybook ending. Class 5A second-ranked North recorded 16 consecutive points during a six-minute stretch in the third and fourth quarters to stave off a challenge from Washington. Even with Allstater and Iowa recruit Journey Houston sidelined for the season because of a knee injury, North advances to the state tournament for the second straight season. Washington overcame a tumultuous start to make North earn it. We got into our offense a little bit. We got some momentum and were able to get set up defensively, Washington Coast Chris James said. Here's the schedule coming up for Class 5A quarterfinals on Monday. Number 1, Johnston at 23-0 versus number 9, West Des Moines Valley at 13-10. Number 4, Waukee at 18-4 plays number 5, Ankeny Centennial 14-8. Number 2, Davenport North 22-2 faces number 7, Cedar Falls at 22-1. Number 3, West Des Moines Dowling plays number 6, Pleasant Valley. The semifinals for 5A, February 29th at 10 and 11.45. The championship takes place March 1st at 6 p.m. In Class 4A quarterfinals, which will be on Tuesday, number 1, Clear Creek Amana at 23-0, faces Gilbert, 15-9. Number 4, Dallas Center Grimes, 20-3, faces number 5, North Polk, with a record of 22-2. Waverly Shell Rock at 23 and 0 plays, uh, plays Sioux Center 17 and 6, and number two Sioux City Helan at 22 and 1 faces number eight Council Bluffs Lewis Central 19 and 4. Semifinals in 4A take place February 29th. The championship game in Class 4A takes place March 2nd. An undefeated CCA advances to state. Here's a look at Tuesday's area games. Top-ranked CCA secured back-to-back -back state tournament appearances and will pursue its first victory there in its third appearance next week. Keokuk closed at 19-4. Gilbert, 60. Cedar Rapids, Xavier, 57. Plenty of opportunities, just not enough conversions. The Tigers went on a 10-4 run to close the fourth quarter and scored six straight points to take control in overtime, edging the Saints on Tuesday night. We made some ill-advised fouls, Xavier coach Tom Lilly said. We took some quick shots. We fouled them, and they made free throws. Don't get me wrong, we had chances. We didn't take advantage of them. In sports of area interest today, it is Boys Class 3A Substate Basketball, and if you're listening on the radio, you can hear Iowa women's basketball. Iowa plays at Indiana at 7 p.m., and that can be heard on KXIC. Turning now to the hoopla section, this story, Sycora Bakery Building Purchased by Cedar Rapids Restaurateur is by Elijah Decius. Chew on this. Sycora Bakery is closing its long chapter as a nostalgic shop in Czech Village, According to the latest signs of movement, after being purchased by a Cedar Rapids property mogul and restaurateur, the property at 73 16th Avenue Southwest, which closed mid-2023, before a failed attempt to revamp the storefront with a new owner in September, 
has changed hands. Property records from the City Rapids Cedar, excuse me, from the city show that the property was sold for $290,000 in December to KN Properties 3 LLC, a holding company related to restaurateur and property owner Corey Nanke. Nanke's restaurant group, Epic Catering, has a hand in multiple restaurants around Cedar Rapids, including the former Boston's, Midtown Station, Midtown Reserve, and Checktown Station, which is next door to Sequora. The closure of this beloved scratch bakery marks the end of an era, said Bax auctioneers in an online listing for the former bakery's commercial equipment. That auction ended on Tuesday. The historic site, built in 1900, began housing various bakeries in 1903. In 1927, Joseph and Clara Sakura started Sakura Bakery, operating it for more than 40 years. After Joseph's death in 1966, the bakery was owned and operated by the couple's sons, Lumiere and Lester, until 1994. John and Sue Rocherak, the last owners of the building, operated it for more than 22 years. Southside Street Foods, a food truck in Iowa City that served savory and sweet fry bread, has closed less than two years after it started. Owner Danielle Velasquez, who started the business in April of 2022, after managing multiple Chipotle locations, served the Navajo tradition with a combination of Chicano and indigenous Yaqui influences from the southwestern United States. Velasquez and his wife have experienced multiple significant losses over the last two years. These losses have brought both emotional and financial challenges, leading me to the difficult decision to shut down the food truck until I am in a better position to reopen, which may take several years due to the costs of licenses and other expenses, he said Saturday on social media. I am immensely grateful for the memories and support we have received since 2022. His social media pages will now be dedicated to promoting other food trucks and restaurants he visits. And also the Webster, a seasonal fine dining restaurant in Iowa City Northside neighborhood, has made USA Today's list of best restaurants in the country. The 2024 Restaurants of the Year list released in February, features 47 fine dining restaurants across a variety of food types. Owners Sam and Rihanna Gelman opened the restaurant in 2021, returning to Sam's home after working abroad at renowned establishments in Toronto and New York City, including the Mamo Fuku Group. The Webster operates in the same site as a former drugstore Sam regularly visited for lunch with his father and grandfather as a child. In the Arts and Exhibits category in the Hoopla section, Continuing Cedar Rapids Museum of Art, Landscape, Climate, the Environment, and Beyond, an all-Iowa juried exhibition examining how the long-established tradition of landscape in art plays out today. That's available on the main floor galleries through May 19. Ravenous Food in Art exhibition explores a variety of artwork to consider the meaning behind food, and that runs through May 5. Also, Power and Impact, 
a survey of 21st century black visual arts in Iowa. This partnership between the African American Museum of Iowa and the Cedar Rapids Museum of Art shows contemporary visual arts through the perspective of black artists in Iowa, and that runs through March 31st. At the Gilded Pear Gallery, Inclinations by Ann Royer, that's in place at the main gallery through May 11. At the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum, Thrift Style, the reuse of feed sacks to make clothing and other household objects, and how the upcycling of these bags mutually benefited 20th century consumers and businesses. That exhibit runs through April 30. And at the History Center, Cultivating Curiosity, Exploring Iowa Agriculture, an educational and interactive experience that promotes learning about agriculture, farming practices, and the importance of agriculture in our daily lives. That runs through May. And at the National Czech and Slovak Museum, Hello, Slovakia! Eight panels showcase a region of Slovakia from natural wonders and important historic sites to folk culture. That's to March 16th at the Scala Bartizal Library. Turning to the Insight page, this story by, or excuse me, column by Todd Dorman, Tax Math is for Non-Believers. There were the loaves and fishes, the Immaculate Conception, and the Immaculate Reception. Do you believe in miracles? Al Michaels asked as the U.S. hockey team beat the Soviets in the 1980 Olympics. Yes! Exclamation mark. That's especially true if you're a Republican state lawmaker who wants to eliminate the income tax. Senator Dan Dawson, Republican from Council Bluffs, the chair of the Ways and Means Committee, has crafted legislation that would, over time, do just that. The plan would reduce the state income tax rate to a flat 3.65% in 2027. In the first couple of years, the elimination plan is less aggressive than a tax plan floated by Governor Kim Reynolds, which would retroactively drop this year's tax rate to 3.65% and cut it to 3.5% next year. Reynolds's plan would result in tax relief and lost revenue to the tune of $3.8 billion over five years. That's a chunk of change. Eliminating the income tax means axing nearly half of general fund revenues. But math is for the non-believers. It's just loaves and fishes, folks, and fat cats will get the biggest savings from the Miracle Buffet. First, Republicans will continue lowballing the state budget while socking away surpluses. In the Governor's General Fund budget for fiscal 2025, Reynolds could legally spend $9.7 billion, but will instead spend $8.9 billion. When the dust settles, according to the Legislative Services Agency, her budget will result in a $972.9 million surplus. The current budget year, which ends in June, is projected to result in a $1.7 billion surplus. In 2023, the surplus was just over $1.8 billion. A hefty portion of the surplus flows into the Taxpayer Relief Fund, which is projected to grow to nearly $3.9 billion in fiscal 2025. That's money the Republicans plan to use to cover the budget hole blown open by tax cuts, at least initially. 
If you like funds, you'll love the Senate bill. Some money from the Taxpayer Relief Fund will get dumped into what's called the Iowa Taxpayer Relief Trust Fund, which will be invested. Then 5% of the trust fund would get shoveled into the new Income Tax Elimination Fund. That will be used to fill the gap created by eliminating the income tax. Cross your fingers and hope the economy doesn't nosedive. Whether the full Senate, House, and Governor are down with this Rube Goldberg machine and its pipes, buckets, and funds remains to be seen. But the clear thread running through all these plans is the state must keep undercutting spending on a long list of priorities. The never-ending thirst for tax cuts means, for instance, the state can't extend postpartum care under Medicaid without kicking hundreds of people out of the program. That keeps the change revenue neutral while we sit on a mountain of surplus revenue. Mental health, public schools, universities, state parks, environmental protection, and other services will get small budget increases. But after all, the surplusing funding has largely stagnated. But we surely will find billions to pay for private school scholarships. This is serious stuff. Whatever tax structure we end up with, will likely be permanent, even if political winds ever shift. Speaking of miracles, and that's 24-hour doorman. One community letter today, Democrats could benefit from Republican voting bills. I've been following with interest the Gazette coverage of House Study Bill 697, partly because voting affects every Iowan, partly because I met and know some of the legislators involved. Annual voting bills originated with Republicans since they took control of both chambers of the legislature in 2017. Regardless of Representative Bobby Kaufman's recent statement to the Gazette, the impact of annual election structure revisions is to make elections more difficult for Iowans. While the majority party continues to ratchet down election restrictions, they apparently don't understand that whatever scheme they devise will serve Democratic success in retaking control of the legislature. Democrats follow the rules no matter who wrote them and eventually will use them to leverage the power of the electorate. We did this during the 2008 election when Iowa's electoral votes went to Barack Obama and we can do it again. Republicans can dink around all they want. It won't mean diddly squat when the Iowa electorate moves to replace them. The movement will be bigger than only what Democrats want because Democrats put people before politics, and that appeals to voters regardless of party. The day for change is coming, maybe as soon as November. That letter today is submitted by Paul Deaton from Solon. And the Insight page Guest column today is submitted by Wally Taylor entitled, Rulemaking Process is a Sham. Aaron Jordan's article in the Gazette on Tuesday described the public hearing on the new DNR Chapter 65 regulations for animal feeding operations. The regulations are being revised as dictated by Governor Kim Reynolds' Executive Order 10. These regulations have long been confusing, inadequate, and open to manipulation by livestock producers and the Department of Natural Resources. Now, as Jordan's article explains, even when the DNR tried to revise the rules to provide more protection for Iowa's waters in areas of karst terrain, 
The governor's administrative rules coordinator blocked the proposed rule because it would not reduce the regulatory burden on livestock producers. The purpose of regulatory rules should not be to reduce the burden, but to ensure protection of people and the environment. The article noted that livestock producers and the Farm Bureau complained that increased protection in areas of karst would have unintended consequences, without explaining that those cons- what those consequences might be. In fact, the consequences for inadequate protection would be the pollution of rivers, streams, and groundwater. The proposed Chapter 65 rules flout the legislative requirement that manure storage structures be covered to minimize odor. So the rules state that a manure pit under a confinement building is covered by a slatted floor over the pit, even though the odor comes up through the slats and is blown out of the building by big fans. The rules also allow what is effectively a confinement operation to be considered as an open feedlot with less rigorous rules. The legislature defined an open feedlot as an operation that is unroofed or partially roofed. The intent was that the cattle would be in a fenced-in open area with the structure where they could seek shelter in inclement weather. The rules allow an operation where the buildings are at least 10% unroofed to be an open feedlot. Buildings are constructed so the feed bunks are unroofed, constituting 10% of the building area, but the cattle never leave the building. The Chapter 65 rule also allow construction of a livestock operation in a floodplain in some instances. This also puts Iowa's water at risk. There is more, but you get the point. The governor's executive order makes the rulemaking process a sham. If the governor can stop a rule on a whim before it is presented to the public, why even have public comment? And if the governor's intent is to reduce regulatory burdens, the rules will not adequately protect the public. This is just another example of the governor's dictatorial control aided and abetted by the legislature. Is this really what Iowans voted for? If so, why? If not, we need to make our voices heard in November. Wally Taylor of Marion is a member of the Executive Council of the Sierra Club, Iowa Chapter. That does it for the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today on IRIS. I've been your reader, Kathleen. You can access today's reading online at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening. Have a great, safe day.
Are you among the millions of Americans living with chronic pain? If so, you may think prescription opioids are the solution. The truth is, the benefits of opioids are limited. Opioids only mask the pain. Opioids also come with serious side effects, ranging from nausea to withdrawal symptoms to overdose. As many as 25% of people who are prescribed opioids struggle with addiction. And those who are addicted to opioids are 40 times more likely to move on to heroin. No one wants to live in pain, but no one should put their health at risk to be pain-free. There is another choice, physical therapy. Physical therapists treat pain through movement and exercise, no warning labels required, and you get to be an active participant in your care. Choose to treat your pain safely. Choose physical therapy. Visit moveforwardpt.com to find a physical therapist near you. This public service announcement is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association.